The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. We've been walking through the book of Hebrews, learning about the supremacy of Jesus. As a review in chapter 1 and 2, we learn that Jesus is a better revelation from God. He's not just another prophet in a row, but Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the one to whom all the prophets point. In chapters 3 and 4, we see how Jesus is a better Moses and a better Joshua because he brings his people into a better promised land and offers them a better rest. Last week, the writer of Hebrews began another comparison that Jesus is a better high priest. And so we must hold fast our confession because only Jesus enables us to draw near to God with confidence. For Jesus alone ever lives to intercede for us so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This week, the writer continues by clarifying more reasons that Jesus is the superior high priest, and he clarifies the benefits that Jesus alone provides. Follow along in your Bibles as I read from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, which, if you don't have a Bible, please follow along in the Pew Bible, on page 1003. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 9. This is God's word. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This this passage gives us a picture of both the benefits and the limitations of Aaron's priesthood. 
Now, I'm going to use the term Aaronic to describe Aaron's priesthood. I'm saying Aaronic, not ironic. <laughs> that confused some people at the first service. But the Aaron's priesthood illustrates the superior priesthood of Jesus. So first, what are the benefits of Aaron's priesthood? Aaron's priesthood was a picture showing us what to expect of Jesus's greater priesthood. And we know this because of two framing phrases at the beginning of verse 1 and verse 5. For every high priest, verse 1, is followed with four verses describing every Aaronic high priest. So also Christ, verse 5, is followed by verses describing Jesus's high priesthood. Now, you've heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words. It communicates a whole lot at once, at just a glance. And so it is for Aaron's priesthood. Aaron's priesthood pictures what Jesus' priesthood would be like and what Jesus would do. First, Aaron's priesthood pictures what Jesus would be like. Look at it in verse 1. Every priest, every high priest, is chosen from among men. Verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself. He humbly receives the call with its duty and responsibility. He doesn't arrogantly assert himself for selfish gain and comfort. And verse 4 continues, he, he only takes it when called by God, as Aaron was. In verse 5, he says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest. As with Aaron's priesthood, Jesus' priesthood, Jesus would be among us, not removed, but near. He would be like us, chosen among men. Now, we've talked about Jesus is the glory of God, like the sun has glory. It shines forth from him. He is fully God. And yet here as priest, he is fully human, that God in our salvation doesn't take any shortcuts, doesn't cut any corners, but knows exactly what it it is like to walk in our shoes. He had a fully human body, a full human will and soul. Not only this, but he did not exalt himself to be made high priest. And so we know that he is humble, that he came to serve, to seek and to save the lost, not to lord it over others. Aaron's priesthood was given, us, given to us as a picture to show us what Jesus' priesthood would be like, that he would be fully human, but not exalt himself. He would come to serve. Next, it pictures what Jesus would do. Aaron's priesthood shows us in verse 1 at the second half that every priest, every high priest, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Notice he's appointed by God himself as high priest. And so he has full authority to act as high priest. No human agency or office, no religious institution or or tradition could ever deny or trump his authority from God. And so he does not need man's approval because his authority is firmly established. And notice Secondly, that the role of every high priest was to represent man before God. Every high priest did this by offering different types of gifts to God on behalf of the people. Gifts that communicated, thank you, God, we praise you, like the grain offerings and the fellowship offerings. But every high priest also offered different types of sacrifices 
sacrifices that communicate it to God. I'm sorry, please forgive me. Like the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and the guilt offerings. And because the priest was appointed by God, not man, to act in these ways, Aaron's priesthood, we have confidence that God viewed these gifts and sacrifices as acceptable and pleasing to him. They were not vainly imagined by mere speculation, but they were communicated by God as desirable. A sure promise that these gifts and offerings were acceptable and and pleasing to him for a time. In other words, God appointed every high priest to offer these gifts and sacrifices for his people so that they might know somehow that they can have a right relationship with a holy God, one that is healthy and intimate and authentic. Now similarly, Aaron's priesthood pictured what Jesus would do. If you look at verse 5, Jesus was called by God just as Aaron was and was appointed by him to offer gifts and sacrifices. And if you look at verse 7, when it's speaking of Jesus, it says, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his reverence. As the appointed high priest, Jesus would offer gifts and sacrifices truly, fully, completely acceptable to God. There was no doubt about it. No need to speculate or wonder. You could have absolute confidence. Jesus served as high priest offering gifts and sacrifices on the behalf of his people so that they could come to know exactly how a right relationship with God that was healthy and authentic and intimate could be eternally established and maintained. Now the pictorial benefits of the Aaronic priesthood are very helpful, teaching us what to expect of Jesus' high priesthood, but like any picture, it only represents the real thing. It's not the real thing. It's very similar to, but it's not exactly like the real thing. It's like a 2D picture reflecting a 3D reality, and so it has limitations. As the youngest of three children in my family, I remember looking through books that had pictures of my parents and older siblings before I came along. And those pictures communicated a lot, proving that my mom was once young and hip, though weirdly dressed, (laughs) and that my older brother, older by seven years, was once a baby. But they could not capture everything. Later in my 20s, my uncle found an old video of my aunt's wedding day. And in it, my mom was dancing with my older brother, Jonathan, on her, on her hip. And I was fascinated. I'd seen pictures of my mom and Jonathan at that very wedding in an album. But none could communicate my mom's spark. Her youthful joy, almost girlish giddiness nor how my older, stronger, and wiser brother was once a little dumpling, (laughs) evidently confused by his surroundings and somewhat frightened by doting relatives. A picture is worth a thousand words. Video is even better, but both still fall short. Nothing equates to the real thing. And so while Aaron's priesthood gives us a good picture of Jesus, 
there are some limitations and distortions when compared to the real thing. And that's our second point. The limitations of Aaron's priesthood in terms of what they pictured, they they failed to fully capture the extent of Jesus' perfect love, his majestic glory, and his power to save. Let's walk through that. First, the Aaron's priesthood was unable to capture the extent of Jesus' priesthood in his perfect love. Unlike every high priest, Jesus could deal gently with his people. But unlike them, Jesus was only sympathetic to their weakness, not their waywardness. Look at verse 2. Every high priest can deal gently with with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. See, every high priest could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, and both the ignorant and wayward are vulnerable, but in different ways. The ignorant are vulnerable because they don't know. They're naive and inexperienced. The wayward are vulnerable because they've strayed. They've turned away, lost their way, and they're in danger. Aaron's priesthood could deal gently with both the ignorant and wayward because they could relate to the vulnerability of weakness due to ignorance and due to waywardness. For they too were beset with such weakness and sin. As such, when Aaron's sons served as high priests, as we see here in verse 3, they were obligated to offer sacrifice for their own sins, just as for the people. But Jesus, though weakened by sharing in our full humanity, was never wayward. He never strayed from God's righteous path. He obeyed God's law perfectly and continuously. Aaron's priesthood imperfectly pictures how Jesus would act in love. See, Jesus' gentleness is all the more remarkable. The Aaronic priesthood had no right to treat those they represented harshly because they themselves struggled with weakness and waywardness. But if you think about it, Jesus had every right to treat people harshly. Having walked in our shoes in weakness, having endured temptation, having been surrounded his whole life by brokenness, Jesus could have easily said, hey, I know what it's like to walk in your shoes, but I never yielded. So stop your whining and your whimpering. I obeyed under pressure. Why can't you? But he was not like those who grow harsh and strident after personal success, but having walked in our shoes and succeeded where we failed, he remained gentle, proving that his gentleness was better than sympathetic. It was more loving, more compassionate, more remarkable. Jesus offers himself to us as a friend to sinners, as we sang about this morning. As Charles Spurgeon said, he does not stand upon a lofty height and bid sinners ascend to him. No, he comes down from the mountains and mingles with them. He draws them to himself by the magnetic force of his almighty love. What a perfect love, compassionate and gentle. Like every high priest, Jesus could deal gently with his people But Jesus' gentleness was even more remarkable 
because he could only relate to their weakness, not their waywardness. Second, the Aaronic priesthood was unable to fully capture Jesus' priesthood in all of its glory. Like every high priest, Jesus was appointed to act on behalf of men. But unlike Aaron's priesthood, Jesus was appointed both priest and king. And that, not temporarily, but eternally, forever. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was a priest, but not according to the order of Aaron, rather according to the order of Melchizedek, as we read in verse 6. Aaron was of the Israelite tribe of Levi, but Jesus was not from that priestly tribe. Rather, he was from the royal tribe of Judah, of King David. Now, in case you didn't know, Melchizedek is a real person's name. It's not easy to recognize or not as easy to recognize as the name Aaron, which is still popular today. But nonetheless, Melchizedek is a real person's name. And we're introduced to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, where Melchizedek blesses Abraham and where Abraham offers Melchizedek a tenth of everything. In other words, Melchizedek serves as the very first high priest of God's people, receiving tithes and offerings and granting God's blessing to Abraham, God's, the father Abraham, the father of God's people. So he predates Levi and Aaron. He is the premier high priest, first in time and first in rank. And as you learn more about Melchizedek, there's no mention of his lineage. He simply shows up on the scene with Abraham in Genesis 14. And as the writer of Hebrews will later clarify in chapter 7, Melchizedek is without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He's a priest forever, not a temporary high priest like Aaron's sons. Melchizedek's priestly order was was much more comprehensive too. It, It was both priestly and kingly. See, we learn in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was king of Salem. And Salem means peace. And when you translate Melchizedek's very name, it means king of righteousness. So we can say that he is king of peace and king of righteousness And the writer of Hebrews connects this priestly order of Melchizedek to the royal line of David by quoting two psalms. The first is Psalm 2-7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as we discussed already in Hebrews chapter 1, this psalm highlights God's promises to rule through mankind, not angel kind. And a particular son of David would rule as king over all the earth fulfilling God's promises to Abraham to bless all nations through his descendant, not just through Israel. The second psalm, Psalm 110, is quoting verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a psalm of David, and it proclaims God's promise to rule through a particular son of David that is both David's Lord and David's priest. As David's Lord, he will rule until all his enemies are at his footstool. And as David's priest, he will empower the people of God to offer themselves freely to God in holy garments. In other words, in true holiness. 
My point is, is that Aaron's priesthood was unable to capture Jesus' priesthood in all of its glory. Like every high priest, Jesus was appointed to act on behalf of men. But unlike Aaron's priesthood, Jesus was appointed a superior high priest who served as both priest and king, not temporarily, but forever. The one who represented his people before God and who rules God's people with absolute righteousness. His priestly and kingly reign does not end in death, but lasts forever. He ever lives to intercede and advocate for you. He ever lives to rule, to provide and protect and do battle for his people. Thirdly, Aaron's priesthood was unable to fully capture Jesus' unique power to save. Like every other high priest, Jesus was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, but unlike Aaron's priesthood, Jesus offered something better than sacrifice. Better than sacrifice? Yes, he offered perfect obedience and thus became the source of our salvation. Look at it in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Loving obedience is the best offering anyone can render to God, better than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15:22 says it this way, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams." Isaiah chapter 1 verses 11 through 13 says it this way, "God is angry at their hypocritical sacrifices. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. I cannot endure the iniquity of your solemn assemblies. See, God knows how offering sacrifices and gifts because of our sinful rebellion, can devolve, devolve into shameful attempts to manipulate God rather than being offered out of loving obedience and joyful surrender to God. And what God ultimately desires is an obedient, trusting heart. And God's sentiments are clear. They're echoed throughout all of the Old Testament. The Psalms, the prophets, in Proverbs 21.3, it says... He wants us to do righteousness and justice. That is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And this is repeated over and over and over again. And that's exactly what Jesus offers God according to Hebrews. Look at it again in verse 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. See, perfect obedience is better than sacrifice. And Jesus offered perfect obedience throughout his life all the way to the end. And verse 7 and 8 illustrate that fact vividly. For it was on his last day, the very night he was betrayed, when he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And although he was heard for his reverence, and although he was a son 
He learned obedience through what he suffered. How so? He learned obedience to his father's will was better than the comforts of this world. He learned obedience to his father's will was better than easily won glory. He learned obedience to his father's will would would vindicate his father's promise as God saved him from death, not by delivering him from a cross, but from delivering him three days later from a grave. See, Jesus learned that by obeying his father's will, he would be vindicated as innocent and as wise to trust God despite the appearances that God had abandoned him and was not trustworthy when he was betrayed and mocked and tortured to death on a cross. See, Jesus learned what it means to obey the Father's will and that through obeying it, he would be proclaimed as righteous. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered and as a result, he who was already perfect was somehow made more perfect I know that sounds weird, but that's what it says in verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obeyed him. The innately righteous and perfect one was being made perfect? How can that be? How can perfection find room for improvement? There's only one way. By sharing it. By passing on his perfection to others. First, by sharing it as good news. Proclaiming it so that what was previously concealed is now revealed for all to behold. The second person of the Trinity, the Son, who was already innately perfect, became expressly perfect. When his perfection was tested, tested by weakness, by temptation and suffering, tested so that we can see it for what it is, true, without fault, without wavering, absolutely pure, his righteous perfection could only be gloriously manifested through weakness, temptation and suffering, like a diamond is gloriously displayed on a very dark background. His perfection grew by allowing observation under distress so that it could be expressed in all of its glory and that we could behold it as good news, that we may stand in wonder and trust it with full confidence. But not only by sharing it as good news, secondly, by sharing it as a gift to all those who obey him. Verse 9, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' perfection is not only ours to see and behold, it's ours to have and possess for ourselves. If we trust him and surrender to him as our great high priest and king, according to the order of Melchizedek, he becomes the very source of our salvation. For he takes our sin upon himself and pays it penalty once and for all. And then he grants us his righteousness. He attributes it to our account. Listen, every other high priest can deal gently with sinners. 
But unlike every other high priest, Jesus can do much more. He can save sinners once and for all because he's never obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins first. And therefore, he stands alone before God as perfectly righteous. And therefore, he alone has the ability to ask the Father to take from the abundance of his righteousness, which is an inexhaustible account, and to transfer it to our account such that we are not merely excused and pardoned of our sin, but we become righteous and deserving of our blessing because when God looks at us and he looks at our account, he sees nothing but righteousness a righteousness that was earned by his perfect obedience. See, that's how Jesus' perfection is improved, by sharing it with us as a gift to all who trust in him and receive the gift, who therefore surrender to his work as priest and to his word as king. And that word warns, do not turn anywhere else. Do not turn back to a lesser priest Stay with me, stay with Jesus, obey him as your high priest and king. Only he can save you. Now we must remember this letter is being written in part because the Hebrew believers who were professing Jesus as high priest are actually being pursued, persecuted even, to recant of their confession and to return to the ways of Aaron's priesthood. And so the writer, to help these Hebrew Christians navigate the challenges, explains the similarities and differences between the administration of Aaron's priesthood and the administration of Jesus' priesthood. Both administrations belong to the same covenant of grace, but a change in an administration or governance from Aaron to Jesus means a change for everyone. No longer are we to follow the ordinances of the old administration, but of the new, Jesus' administration. The Westminster Confession of Faith explains it this way. In the Old Testament, in the time of law, the covenant of grace was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover lamb, and other types and ordinances to to the Jews to foresignify the Christ to come. But in the New Testament, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, is exhibited, he fulfills the promises and the prophecies, and he ends all sacrifice through his once and for all sacrifice. See, Jesus administrates things a little bit differently, more simply, thankfully, and yet also more powerfully. He does it through the preaching of his word and the institution of his sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper, and that's it. Now, grappling with this change of administration and all that it means and doesn't mean, it it was a challenge for this early church, especially since their community were mostly made of Jewish converts who had long known life under the old administration. But we might be able to sympathize with their challenge if we consider a modern-day illustration. Consider what happens when a government or administration ends, similar to what's happened recently in Venezuela. When a governmental administration ends, so does the legitimacy of their currency. And people accustomed to trusting in that currency, the peso or the bolivar or the dollar, are forced into a sobering reality. Paper currency has no innate value, only representative value. And if you don't trade it in for the new currency that represents a better governmental administration, you may think you have money but it ain't worth anything 
because the old legal currency is no longer accepted in exchange for goods and services. Now, spiritually speaking, the letter to the Hebrews is written at such a time of change. Those who would, and, and I'm sorry, these changes would expose and remind everyone of the difference between something that has only representative value and something that has innate value. And Aaron's priesthood had representative value for a time, but never innate value. Only Jesus Christ ever had innate value as high priest. He is the gold standard. But see, most people have gotten so used to the old currency, that of Aaron with its sacrifices and purity rituals, that they had either never fully realized or simply they had forgotten for all practical purposes that Aaron's priesthood was only ever a replica. Like paper money, it had representative value only in as much as it pointed to something beyond itself, to a gold standard high priest that was enduring, stable, unfading in his work and his rule, with a stable government behind him, a priest whose work did not end in death, but whoever lived to intercede on behalf of his people. Aaron's priesthood was intended to picture Jesus' priesthood, and it is a beautiful picture that prepares us for what Jesus would be like and what he would do. But like any picture, it had limitations that could only be resolved by beholding the real thing, beholding Jesus and seeing how truly superior he was. In closing, one application. How does this all apply? Receive and exalt Jesus. Trust him and his power to save. Do you not see he exceeds all expectations to not only deal with your sin by pardoning it, he removes it and replaces what was there with his righteousness so that you can have direct access with God without fear, with full confidence, and now he ever lives to intercede for you. He prays for you. Jesus prays for you a lot. He is your advocate, and he prays sympathetically because he knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. He has suffered. He suffered more than you. He suffered to the point of death. And his prayers are powerful and effective. And when he prays, he's heard because of his reverence. So go to him, recognizing he is pouring out his heart in prayer to the Father for you. Wonder at his glory. He is your priest and king. There is none like him. He not only purifies you of your sin, he rules over and he gives you his spirit that's seeking to rule in your heart and conquer all your vices and your struggles and your addictions and your sinful habits. And he's going to claim victory over those things and free them from you. I long for that day. And he won't stop until he has victory of total holiness in your life. Wonder at his glory. Obey him in love. We all have to obey someone, even if it's just ourselves, our own desires and idols. But there's nothing and no one more worthy to obey than Jesus. He alone is worthy of your full obedience and devotion. He's perfectly gentle and abundantly compassionate. He's the safest person to obey because he'll never turn on you. He's the perfect lover, always gentle. So exalt Jesus, trust in his power to save, wonder at his glory, obey him in love. Let us pray. Our great God and Father, thank you for Jesus, our great high priest, who is so much more 
than we could ever imagine or hope for. Let us exalt his name as we wonder at his glory, as we trust in his power to save, and as we obey him in love. We pray this in our high priest's holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.